0: Good afternoon. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're still in chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. One of the joys of having children is recognizing that you have the opportunity to learn the what-if game. Have you ever heard about the what-if game? If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Dad, what if you had four arms? Dad, what if I ate the front door? Well, I suppose then we'd probably have to call the doctor and I'd have to buy a new front door. Dad, what if the Lions won the Super Bowl? All right, kids, let's not get carried away. All right, this is getting a little ridiculous now. People like talking about the what-if game, and and probably, if you're a regular adult, uh, you enjoy the what-if game, too. Sometimes, every once in a while, I'll I'll throw some things uh, my wife's way, and she actually hates the what-if game, Uh, but, but I sometimes enjoy them. I think, well, you know, what if we... And, and the, the immediate moment I say, what if, she start, begins the eye roll, you, you know what I'm saying? So I, I enjoy that sort of thing. But oftentimes when we're playing the what if game, we're asking the question about something that uh, is maybe irrational or it's outside the bounds of natural reality. This afternoon, I think Peter is playing a little bit of the what if game in a different way. And because he's presenting something to us, and he's essentially asking this question. What if what the scriptures teach about Christ and eternity and what God has done to establish and put mankind on this earth, his purposes for them, and the reality of an eternal life to come? What if all of that is true, just as the scriptures teach us? And I'm going to argue that Peter answers that question by suggesting that if it's all true and it is, then it should influence our lives in some way. Now, why do I say that Peter is beginning the what if game? You'll notice that the passage that we're dealing with here begins with the word therefore. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're beginning in verse 13. For I am holy. That's the passage we're going to be thinking about today. And I'd like to draw your attention to that very first word. The word therefore. It's often been said in the history of preachers. If you ever see the word therefore, you ask the question, what's it? Therefore. All right, you've all heard that uh, terrible joke in the past. In this case, it's here for a reason. It's suggesting to us that he's... Building on the case he's made up to this point. And here's what essentially Peter's saying Since what I've just said to you is true, here then is how you ought to live. So, one of the things we've got to do in order to fully understand the passage that sits before us is to remember what Peter said up to this point. So, that's what we're going to do here in these next few moments. We're looking at the word therefore and we're asking the question, what is he building the present case that he's saying in verse 13 on? And if you'll remember all the way back to the first two verses, here's what Peter did. He said, I'm writing to you and you are elect exiles. You're chosen by God for incredible blessing. And yet that incredible blessing comes with exile from this world, estrangement from the world and from the lifestyle you once lived. Verses 3 to 5 then, he says, and man, is not election the most wonderful thing you've ever heard about? Because election brings with it the new birth, and the new birth brings with it innumerable blessings that you can't even fathom, that is even hard to describe. So much so that Peter's later going to say, you rejoice over this with words inexpressible. There's a joy that overflows when you understand this in such a way that you can't even put words to it. And then he interrupts his praise of God for what he's doing with these these few verses about suffering. It's the elect exile status, right? He emphasizes the election in verses 3 to 5. Then he emphasizes the exile, the estrangement, the challenge we face. And he says, our exile does include suffering. And believer, we must accept this truth in order to live in this world. God has not always promised that the pathway to glory would be lined with roses. But he's promised to be with us the whole way. And here in verses 6 to 9, Peter says, This elect status comes with the exile and the challenge of suffering. And yet when you understand what you've been given in Christ, even in the midst of suffering, you can rejoice. And then he sandwiches that message of suffering in between two considerations of the blessing of election. And last week, we talked about verses, one, verses 10, and 10 to 12. And we argued there that what Peter was telling us is that we as believers are of all men most to be envied. Of all people in this world, we are the most to be envied. Because we have received that which we were actually created for. Adam and Eve lost in the garden, fellowship with God. What have we gained in Christ? We have gained the very presence of the Holy Spirit living amongst us. We have, we have that for which we were created. So, Peter says, here's what you've been given in Christ. You are, you've are you been granted a status of elect exiled. And he builds this case in these verses, but then he comes down to this passage and he says, So, in light of all the blessings that we've just discussed about election, therefore, here is what you ought to do. And he's going to suggest three things about what your life should look like in light of your election, in light of your coming to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two of the three we're going to discuss today. The last one we're going to leave till later. So the first one is set your hope fully on the grace coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put your full hope on Jesus' coming. That's the first one. We'll talk about that in a moment. Second, imitate your Father in holiness. That is, live a holy life and be like God because that's who you were made to imitate. And then the third one is to live in reverent fear. Now, you may have a lot of questions about what exactly this means. And uh, it won't be next week, actually, now that I think about it a little bit more. I won't be speaking next week. We're going to have a missionary next week. But the following week, we're going to come back and we're going to finish and talk about what Peter means in this passage that follows the passage we just read. But the first two I want to discuss today. Peter says, since Christianity is true, here are two things That you must do. First, set your hope fully on the coming of Jesus. Now, you'll notice what he says here. He says, set your hope. You'll notice that in the the middle of verse 15. Here's the command, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What exactly is hope? You know, when we think of the word hope, in the modern English definition of the word. We tend to think of it more in line with what I was just talking about in reference to the Lions. I hope that the Lions win the Super Bowl this year. And we tend to use that language as in, it's it's probably not rational for me to believe this. It's not reasonable. There's no reason for me to hold this, but I just hope that it'll take place. Here's the fact about Scripture, though. When Scripture uses the word hope, and you've got to think about this throughout the the entirety of Scripture. When Scripture uses the word hope, it is not talking about an unsubstantiated claim. Something that you have no evidence for. Something you, you would think, you know, there's really no reason to believe this, but I'm going to do it anyways. There are a lot of people, by the way, who think that's what Christianity is. That what Christianity calls you to do is simply to throw your hope in the wind. And I say, well, you know, i got to believe something, so I'll believe in this Jesus guy. And I hope that all works out in the end. That's the way we tend to use the word hope. But you'll notice that Scripture uses it in a vastly different way. It actually suggests that hope is something that's grounded in reason. It's grounded in evidence. It's grounded in something that goes beyond my mere wish or fancy. It's an event, I note here, where we have good grounds... For expecting, just think about with me a passage that you probably know well: Hebrews chapter eleven, the definition of faith. And again, I already mentioned that a lot of the world thinks that faith is merely a blind faith, but there's no such thing in Scripture. There's no blind faith in Scripture. Instead, here's how Hebrews defines faith, and it uses the word hope. And so I'm to define. I'm to use. I'm to try and define the word faith, hope, in light of the biblical definition of the word faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here the writer to Hebrews is telling us, is faith is assurance. I know it. It is the conviction of things not seen. It's, it's standing behind a door, and you hear. The dog barking. Maybe you smell the dog. You can't see the dog, but somebody says, is there a dog? And you say, there's a dog. I am convinced there's a dog. This is what faith is. We can't see it with our eyes, but we know it to be true. Coming back then to the word hope, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Here, hope then isn't hoped, I'm throwing my lot to the wind and I'm hoping it comes out. Rather, hope is that thing in which I have placed my confidence in. The fullness of who I am, I've placed it in that, and I have assurance of it. Now, in what case, or why would we have any form of assurance of the hope of Christianity? Peter's actually already told us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, He, that is, God the Father, has caused us to be born again, and then notice those words in blue, to a living hope. We've been born again, that is, the Holy Spirit of God has granted new life to you, and that new life has planted a seed in your heart. Do you know what that seed is? It's a living hope. It's a hope that's not going to die, and it's a hope that's based upon something. What is it based on? Well, the passage goes on. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do I believe that one day I will rise from the dead? Because Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. The tomb is gloriously empty. He broke the pattern. And he promised us that those who trust in him, though they die, they will never die. Though they may experience the first death, they'll never experience the second death. He will raise them on that day, and their physical bodies will indeed be raised. Here is the biblical hope that we have. So let's read that again in light of what Peter's saying then about hope. Don't read this in reference to something we're just, you know, we we're really we're wishing would work out, but rather a hope that is substantiated in our hearts by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what, then what he says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope, set your future expectation fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, how exactly are we going to set our hope? If we finally understood what it means to hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus, what does it mean that we set our hope in something? And Peter actually tells us two things. The two things he says to us actually come before the command. So, notice with me in verse 13, the first portion, he says, Therefore, first, preparing your minds for action. Now, you'll notice that I have up on the screen a good King Jamesism. As you get uh, used to me more, you'll come to realize that I grew up on the King James. And every once in a while, I'll quote a passage, and it'll sound rather old. <laughs> Well, that's because I've, you know, a lot of the memorization I had as a kid was from the King James. This is the way the King James puts this phrase. It says, girding up the loins of our minds. Now, that's not a, a form of language that we use very frequently today. But that is the analogy that Peter is using here. Here's what he's saying. In the ancient world, everybody wore dresses, in essence. They didn't call them dresses, but everybody wore long garments. And if you were engaged in work, let's imagine uh, you went to your workplace and now you're about to start work, what would you do? Well, according to the biblical testimony and the historical testimony we read about, you would gird up your loins. In other words, you you would reach down and you would grab your long garment, you'd reach it up and you'd tie it around so that your legs were free to move so that you could engage in the action, whether it's planting crops or whatever you needed to do, you prepared yourself, you girded up your skirts or you girded up your garment in order to work. But you'll notice that Peter uses this analogy in a slightly different way because he doesn't say gird up your loins, but he says gird up the loins of your mind. And I think a perfect analogy, one commentator puts it this way. He says, really what Peter's saying is, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Just think about it with me for a moment. If I said, all right, roll up your sleeves, what, what am I saying? Let's get ready for action, right? We've got something to get done. We've got to work, right? So we roll up our sleeves. They rolled up their garment. But the point is that some hard work's coming. Some difficult labor is about to come upon us. And in the same way, I think that's exactly what Peter's saying here. He's saying, to set your mind on the hope that's going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ is not a lackadaisical affair. It's not a lazy thing that we can engage in. But it's something that actually takes our attention. Good laborers are known for their dedication and their focus on the task. Those who are distracted and who do other things we recognize as not good laborers. Here, Peter's saying, roll up the sleeves of your mind, begin to think about this question, how can I set my hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Now. What exactly is Peter getting at here? I think he's indicating that it's going to be difficult and that there are certain things that are going to get in the way of us setting our hope on the, on the coming of the Lord. And we'll address those in just a moment. This analogy, though, I think is a biblical analogy. He derives this not merely from the Old Testament, but also from Jesus. Think about Exodus twelve eleven. If you will remember the commentary or the the history of the book of Exodus, you know that the people are in Egypt. They're about to come out out of Egypt into the promised land, or at least into the wilderness for a while. And here's what the scripture text says to them. They're about to eat the Passover feast. He says, in this manner you shall eat the Passover with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Uh, the passage there in, in Exodus 12 11, it's a little bit uh, buried in that text, but it actually uses the exact same phrase about having your loins girded. Here it's having your belt fastened. That's the same passage, that's the same phrase. In other words, when they ate the Passover, they actually ate it prepared to go. Think about that in terms of Peter's letter so far. What has he addressed these readers as? They are elect exiles. They are individuals who are in this world at the time. But they're on a journey. And the real home is the heavenly land. And I think what Peter's doing by using this same analogy as he's saying this. Always be prepared. To go to the land that you've been longing for. You are a sojourner in this land. Don't feel at home because this isn't your home. Be prepared. Always be ready, thinking of the home to which you will call home. Jesus, though, uses this same analogy. And I think what Peter is doing is he's actually referring back to the Old Testament reference as well as Jesus' teaching. Because notice what Jesus says in Luke 12. Stay dressed for action. That's the same path. That's the same language. If we looked at it in the King James, you'd say, uh, keep your loins girded. All right? Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. In other words, I think Peter's saying, Peter's addressing this analogy because Moses used it for the the people. Jesus says, you are to be like that generation who are waiting for the age to come. And Peter now addresses us with the exact same language. Be prepared for the age to come. Think hard about what it means that that life is coming and that we need to be prepared for it. But I want you to notice a second thing that he says that we must do in order to set our hope fully. You'll notice we notice the first portion preparing your minds for action but notice the second thing he says in being sober minded. Why does he use this analogy? Well it's an analogy of drunkenness but it's actually the opposite of drunkenness. In the ancient world wine was a plenty. Vineyards were everywhere. And so there were there was wine and I uh, and in the ancient world, they knew alcohol just like we do. And there were people who were addicted to alcohol. And one of the, well, I don't know if they had laws against being on your chariot while being drunk, but I would, I would guess they did. Because do you know there's something about being drunk? You can't think right. Your mind isn't straight. You're confused about some things, and, and you're not in your best state. Here's Peter's analogy. He's, he's not actually telling them don't drink. What he's saying is, here's what you have to do in reference to the coming kingdom. In, coming to the, in reference to the Lord's return, you must be sober-minded. You must be serious thinking. Now notice there are two additional things that he says concerning this preparing our minds and being sober-minded and setting our hope fully. Notice he says this first, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not just a throwaway term that he uses. Here's what Peter's saying. Set your hope on the fact that Jesus is going to come, and when he comes, you're not going to get what you deserve. Set your hope on that. Because we are a people who long to be rewarded for what we've done. But there's something in scripture that tells us, in fact, that when Jesus comes, he will, in fact, bring rewards. The scripture promises that. But the main thing we anticipate him for is his grace, his kindness. That when he comes, he's going to set right what's been wrong. And that though we have historically been on the wrong side, he will be gracious towards us. Friend, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, let me simply say that there are really two categories, two classes of people who are awaiting the coming of the Lord. There are some who wait it with great anticipation, hoping and longing for the coming of the Lord, because when he comes, he will come in grace and kindness and mercy, because his son has covered their sins. And they have nothing to fear of the coming judgment, because the, the stamp has already been put, forgiven But there's a whole other class of people, those who have not yet come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And Scripture tells us that their lot is not a good one. First comes death and then the judgment. And when the Lord Jesus comes, He will judge each man according to the deeds that He's done. And Scripture tells us that no man's deeds are such that God is impressed. No man's deeds are such that God says, Oh, you can make it. The the scales we love to think about so often... The scale is so heavily tilted against your favor that I don't care how much good works you have, you'll never even it out, let alone get it in your balance. And so what do you need? You need the grace of God. And you say, well, what can I do to obtain this grace? And that's the most glorious part of the whole thing. You ask Him. You repent. You trust. You see, those of us who are here and know the Lord Jesus Christ, what we wait for is the grace that he will will bring to us at his coming. But notice the second word that I think is important. He says, set your hope fully. And here what I think he's saying is that the coming of the Lord is something that stands above any other aspiration, hope, or end you could ever imagine. Such that if you're going to set your hope somewhere, it's all got to be set there. All of it. Now, there may be things on the path to that. But when our hope is set anywhere else, it'll be a problematic hope. You know, one of the things we think about as a family is schedules and calendars. Oh, I am not excited about the start of school and the start of all the things that are gonna be loading up the calendar. Uh, my oldest daughter now plays basketball, and so the number of times I'm going back and forth to drop her off, we're just filling up the calendar with all sorts of things. And then she plays in the band, and some of my other girls do as well, and so then they've gotta to go to this, uh, this recital and meet all these sorts of things. And, and if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Our, our schedules fill up so much, and sometimes you have to make the choice. You have to say, you know, what what can I put in this schedule and what just has to go? What can't go here? And when you're faced with that question, what you do is you begin to analyze and you begin to put priority on certain things over other things. Our family has always put a priority on being in the Lord's house on Sunday. And so if my daughter says, I'd like to be in this league and the league meets on Sundays, we're not going to do that simply because we have a priority that stands above in reference to that day. And in the same way, I think what Peter's saying is when it comes to your priorities of life and what you set your hope in, what you live for, your hope must be fully set, entirely set on the coming grace that's going to be coming to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what exactly does this look like? I really think it means this, that you have to re- reprioritize your life. What are you living for? What are you here for in this life? What do you spend your time on and why? I enjoy reading books about business. so. Uh, Books about being better at business, these sorts of things. I I don't know. I, I guess I'm just weird. I enjoy those sorts of books. But one of the things that comes up in every single one of those books is that you have to think about what you're doing. You have to think about your life. You've got to think about your priorities. And you've got to, every once in a while, take an inventory of your life and say, how much time am I spending doing, and fill it in. And as I'm spending time doing whatever it is, then you ask yourself, is that accomplishing my main purposes of life? And if your answer is, you know, that's really not accomplishing the main purposes of life, then what do you do? You cross it off. And you say, what else could I be doing here? Here's what the Lord Jesus is telling us through this passage by the pen of Peter. He's saying... Think hard about what your life should look like if, in fact, Christianity is true, and it is. So, Peter says, first of all, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. But what if Christianity is true? Is there something else? And I think so. There's a second thing. And that is, with this phrase, imitate your Father in holiness. Imitate your Father in holiness. We see this. Uh, Beginning in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. I want you to notice that there really is two bases for this command. The first comes from the Old Testament, and that phrase, you will be holy for I'm holy, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that that happens with great frequency, particularly in the book of Leviticus. And I'm told that you studied the book of Leviticus. So maybe you remember that phrase. But here's what it says in Leviticus 11.45. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy Because I am holy. There's a relationship that exists because of God's calling us out of darkness and into his light. And that relationship is that we should become like him. Because he's worthy of emulation. He's worthy of being imitated. So we ought to imitate him. But there's really a a second thing here. Another basis for why we ought to do this. And it's a new covenant basis. Notice how he begins this command, verse 14, as obedient children. Peter is developing the analogy that he produced all the way back in verse 3. You remember the analogy was, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again into a new family having an inheritance and all that pertains to that new family. And now here's what Peter's saying. As obedient children, that is, since you are now a child of God, here's what you have to do. You have to be like your father. Gloriously, I'm still at the stage where my girls kind of want to be like me. I hear that won't last. Uh, but but there's, there's joy in that. As, as I see some elements of that, as they seek to 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 live like they see their mother and father live. And that's the basis of this command. Since you are a child of God, then live like God. And oh, we should. Now, there are two sides of this command. There's a negative side and a positive side. Let's start with the negative side. He says this, as obedient children, do not... So obedient children should not do this. And it's actually the opposite of being conformed to God's image. It says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The language here, being conformed, is the same language we read in Romans chapter 12. And I've got up on the the screen here cookie cutters. One of the things my girls absolutely love to do is make cookies. And then they'll take those cookie cutters and they'll conform the dough to the image of the cookie cutter. And here's what Peter's saying. Do not be formed in the shape of your former passions. And the implication is this. That no matter the fact that you have been redeemed, that you've been saved, that, you've been, that now the Holy Spirit lives within you, there is a pressure still upon you from an alternative direction. If you're a believer, you know this experience. You want to be holy, just like your Father is holy. But there's still something in you that wants to go after the passions of your flesh, the ones that you used to have in your ignorance. And Peter says, do not be conformed. The same passage we see in Romans chapter 12, our same word. Paul there tells us, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then notice verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I am convinced that Peter and Paul had lots of discussions about this. And I think they're both thinking the exact same thing when they both write this passage. Because you'll remember, Peter's just been talking about how we think. And Paul... Likewise, puts together two ideas. Don't be conformed. Don't allow the mold of this world, the mold of your flesh to shape you. Instead, be transformed by the work of God in your own heart. And Peter here says, it is necessary that we be shaped not by our own flesh. Indeed, think about it. What does Peter tell us? He says, these are your passions of your former ignorance. This is the way you used to live before you knew any better. Will you return to that? And now that you have come to know Christ, can you go back to the same lifestyle? I trust not. And this is what Peter's saying. Don't be conformed to that. That's what you did when you were ignorant, when you didn't know any different. But now you know. And don't be conformed to that. Instead, here's the positive side. Be holy as the one who called you is holy. One of the glorious things that we see in the redemption that's been offered to us in Christ is that we are recovering what we were originally supposed to be. Adam and Eve in the garden, they had no sin. They lived righteously. And yet they fell, and with them, we also fell. What Christ did in coming and bearing our sin in his body on the tree is that he offered a new opportunity for us to be reshaped in the fashion we lost. To be recreated in the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is himself the image of God. We are to be like Christ, who is like the Father. And as he is holy, we are to be holy. Holy simply means set apart for him. Our actions are to be righteous. What's interesting about the way Peter quotes the Old Testament, though, you see this in verse 16. The ESV at least puts it this way, and, and we'll notice some differences among English translations. He says, "Since it is written, you shall be holy. You shall be, or you will be holy, for I am holy." There's some debate as to whether this uh, particular verb here, which is given in a future tense, should really be translated in the present tense. And so you'll see some uh, some translations say, "You must be holy." for I am holy. And that does fit the Old Testament context quite well. But I think it's quite possible that what Peter's saying here is this, be conformed to the image of the Father because you will be holy because I am holy. In other words, this then becomes somewhat a promise of the Father to us. That since he has begun a good work in us, He's going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is going to make us what we already are. That is, if we remember way back when we were looking at 1-2, Peter says, you are holy. You are a saint. And now scripture teaches us that God is making us holy. It is an encouraging thing. So, Peter gives to us, a couple of responses we ought to think about if Christianity is true. I began with this analogy that my kids like to play the what-if game. And you have to wrestle through in your, in, in your mind, okay, so if, in fact, I had four arms, what would that be like? Peter here also says, what if all of what I've said is true? What if there is an age to come? What if Christ has died for our sins according to the scriptures and risen again according to the scriptures and that he is coming back to bring with him those who are his what if that's true Peter says if that's true and it is he's not, he's not doubting he says then set your hope fully on that grace set all of your expectation, all of your desires, your entirety of life point it in the direction of the coming of Christ. Second, live holy lives. And this is in some ways almost like reiterating what I just said. Since we are to be shaped and fashioned in the image of God eternally, let us be doing that now. Don't conform to your previous passions. That was ignorance. But live in light of what Scripture has taught. So, you'll notice that he really is saying here, I think, if I could summarize these two points, he's saying this. You must reorient your life in light of your new hope. You must reorient your life in light of your new hope. And we must no longer live in that ignorance. Peter has argued at the beginning of verse 13 that this process of reorienting your life is hard work. It's going to take thinking. I mentioned those business books earlier. From uh, from many of those business books, they say, here's what you ought to do. You ought to take a full day, a whole eight-hour day. Take the day off of work. And sit in a room and think about your life. And think about where you want to be. You want to be a millionaire? You want to own these three businesses? You want to, whatever it is, think about that goal. And then look at your whole life and say, how are they leading me to that? And if there are things that aren't getting you there, knock them off. And if there are things that's getting you there, but you need to put more time into it, start putting more time into it. But think hard about it. If, in fact, people in this life will spend such time thinking about their goals and aspirations, their ultimate hopes in this life, things that will not last, that will fade with their using. Is it not imperative that we as a church... We as people who have been redeemed by Christ, who've been bought by such a price as that, that we would do the same as we consider our lives. So here's the homework for this week. And no, I'm not going to have you turn it in next week. All right? but Here's the homework for this week. Set aside a half hour sometime this week. Maybe it's tonight. And do that. Say, here is the hope that I have. I mean, the the beautiful blessing of this is I've already given it to you. I haven't. Peter has, right? All of us have the same hope. We have the same end goal. Make it with grace until the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Set my hope fully on that coming. Now we've got that. Take a half hour sometime this week and take an inventory of your life and ask yourself the question, how is my life today? propelling me towards my hope. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we've been given to consider this question. I thank you for the ways in which you've helped me to think through it. And Father, I certainly desire to do this more myself. So give me the grace to do the very thing I'm asking these dear saints before me to do. Oh, Lord, you've given to us a hope that is beyond any that this world could offer, one that is worthy of our full dedication. So help us to roll up the sleeves of our mind, to put the hard work to this task, so that we might be found pleasing to you, more conformed to to your image as obedient children. Thank you for your grace. And thank you that your grace is coming for us. Amen.